Thanks for joining me for another episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with John Murray. We talked to John about his humble beginnings in a cattle farm near Canberra, his background at PwC, just like other industry stalwarts who really were founders of the Australian funds management industry, like Chris Cuff. He came from an accounting background with PwC. We talked to John about him starting Perennial, the funds management business that employs around 50 people and manages about $6.5 billion of funds under management at the moment. We talked to him how they've diversified their business and really pivoted to become a specialist investment house. John talks to us about how they value companies, and he talks about a lot of the metrics and techniques they use to form their opinions and views. He talks about his current market outlook, as well as giving away some of the key areas and industries that he thinks make very good investments at the moment. Please, I'd like to also say thank you to Josh Clark, my son, for his editing and publication of the podcast, along with Tom Oriel, who helps me produce each episode. I'd also like to call out to our listeners and remind them of the opportunity to participate in the 100th episode that we'll be recording live on the 25th of August in Sydney. If you'd like to come along and be part of the audience and ask questions, you'll be joined by three panellists, being Alexandra Clark from Elliston Capital, Phil King of Regal and Rhett Kessler of Pangana. If you'd like to come along to this, please email us at hello at insidetherope.com.au. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it specific advice. You're encouraged to receive financial advice or obtain it before making any investment decisions. And of course, remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Thank you very much and enjoy the episode. Hi, John. Welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. And, and thanks to you and Carter for having me. It's uh, much appreciated. John, it's terrific to have you on the podcast. Perhaps you could kick it off by giving listeners a bit of an insight as to who you are and, and your background, please. Yes, um, uh, uh, certainly, David. I, I guess, you know, going way back, um, I was brought up in the country. I was brought up in a, uh, a family farm um, south of Canberra. Um, uh, my, uh, my father there uh, produced uh, sheep and cattle. So a great, uh, a great uh, background there living in the country. I'm the eldest of uh, four children. Um, and, uh, but, but I guess, you know, one of the things that sticks in my mind about, uh, about being brought up there is my, my father was a um, very innovative um, farmer and grazier, and, uh, but he was, uh, he was uh, belted pretty badly by a couple of really big droughts way back in the, the 60s and 70s. And uh, I, I can well remember in my mid-teens um, th thinking about this and thinking, uh, gee whiz, I don't think I want to be in a business where, where the weather could dictate um, whether I whether I do okay or not, and because uh, uh, I saw the angst and the pain that my uh, that, that those droughts put my father through. But anyway, there we go. I, I made the decision there and then that I, I didn't want to uh, stay in the land. Um, that I wanted to go into business, but without, without quite knowing what going into business meant. Um, I did an accounting degree in Canberra. I studied uh, in Canberra at uni there. Um, and then I thought I'd uh, come to the uh, come to the big smoke as as it looked then, um, and, um, and, uh, and 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 try my hand. And uh, at at the end of my accounting degree, David, I uh, had two job offers to con consider. It's quite funny looking back on this. One was uh, um, a, as a junior accountant um, with the then ICI's head office uh, at One Nicholson Street in uh, in Melbourne, um, and and the uh, job offer there came with a. Uh, a salary offer of fifteen thousand dollars, and then I had another firm offer from uh, 
the Price Waterhouse head office up here in Sydney, and, and that job offer was for twelve thousand five hundred dollars. Um, so you know, as a young guy that wasn't used to too much money at that that point in time, the uh, the difference between twelve and a half thousand and fifteen thousand dollars was something I had to seriously consider. <laughs> but nonetheless. I, uh, I backed myself and came to Sydney and uh, joined Price Waterhouse, and uh, that's where I attained my chartered accounting qualification. There, uh, working in the uh, auditing and insolvency divisions, um, and that, that was a wonderful background at uh, at Price Waterhouse. It's now Price Waterhouse Coopers, of course, PwC. Um, and I then moved on to uh, Bankers Trust, where I, I worked there as a credit analyst, and you know that was in the mid '90s. And, and, and I look back on those years as, as really important formative years. David, in the sense that, you know, in the case of both uh, Pricewaterhouse and Bankers Trust, that was um, really the, putting together the building blocks for, 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 for what uh, I then came to use as an analyst uh, as I moved into funds management. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes' time in terms of stock selection criteria I look for and so forth. Um, I, I then, uh, the funds management game at that stage was still in the early stages, but it was just starting to uh, burgeon, uh, if you like, with compulsory super and um, and uh, the introduction of uh, imputation and so forth. Um, I got my first lucky break in funds management um, with Perpetual. I joined there um, at the age of 30 where I was appointed head of equities. So I became the head of equities at Perpetual at the age of age of 30. Um, um, I, I preceded, um, or I succeeded, I should say, uh, Chapano Anton Taliaferro. Um, he employed me there. Uh, one, of, one of Australia's uh, uh, finest investors. Um, and during that time at Perpetual, it was a, was a pretty exciting time. Um, the industrial share fund was starting to become known and we were starting to promote ourselves in the world of financial advisors. So it was all new to all of us. But I got to say, looking back on it, it was just incredibly exciting. I'd like to think we built up a pretty good team during that period of time. Um, uh, um, uh, Peter Morgan uh, was my number two. We also employed John Sevio and Matt Williams uh, during that period of time. So, you know, of course, my, you know, Anton, myself, Peter Morgan, um, John, John and Matt, um, you know, we uh, we all went and did, you know, different things. Some, uh, some pretty big names in the Australian funds management landscape. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And, um, you know, it's quite extraordinary when you look when you look back on it. We didn't know what, what the future held for us at that period of time. So, um Anyway, that was that. That was, that was fantastic, and I, I, you know, one of the things that stands out in my mind is that you know during my time as head of equities there, uh, Perpetual won for the first time um, Australian Fund Manager of the Year uh, for Australian equities. Uh, there are lots of awards these days, but back then there weren't too many, so it was really really special to to win that. That sort of sticks out in my mind. Things were going well there, um, um, but uh, I, um, I I was approached to join uh, Maple Brown Abbott as a, as a senior member of Maple Brown Abbott's team. Which, which I remember the time was just incredibly um, humbling in some ways and, and, and at the same time very, very exciting. Uh, Rob Maple Brown, I've always, always held out, did, did then and still do. Uh, Rob passed away not that long ago, of course, but uh, as one of the truly great investors and you know, Maple Brown Abbott at the time of the sort of like the, the, the glamour fund manager and uh, you know, with his very strong value investment philosophy. So with Rob and John Kitely there, of course, building a formidable business. And, and what was that philosophy and how did it differ from where you'd been? It, it wasn't that different. I, I, I guess at, at, at Perpetual, we were, um, if for some reason, we, we all thought we, we, we sort of were value investors. Uh, I, I think looking back on that, that's just what, what 
what suited us in terms of our personalities and our training and so forth. Um, and, um, you know, Anton and Pete come from the chartered accounting background as well, coincidentally. Um, so, so Maple Brown Abbott, um, it, it, it was a value investor as well. Um, so that kind of suited me um, in terms of my style. But of course, they, they, they'd been doing it for, for quite a period of time. So I learned a lot there at, at Maple Brown Abbott. Um, and, and, and Rob very kindly gave me a, a small allocation of equity in the business. So, uh, you know, I thought I was made and, uh, and I was, was looking to stay there for a very long period of time. Um, I, I, I didn't. I, I stayed there for, for, for sort of just on two years or just under two years. Um, I, 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 I looked at what Rob was doing and, and I thought, gee, I wouldn't mind doing this myself one day. Um, there was just something that sort of piqued an interest in me there. And I thought, oh, gee, I'd love to build up a, a boutique myself one day. Um, so I, I think the only person um, that understood my decision to move on was my wife. <laughs> I, I think everyone else thought I must have been t uh, you know, t two parts mad to do to make uh, a decision to leave such a, a you know a, a great institution. Um, but there we go. I made the call. Um, but I, I, I knew and I felt at the time that I, 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 so I wasn't commercially mature enough. Uh, David to, uh, to 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 run a boutique, so I I, um, I secured a, a job as the investment director of Australian shares at Westpac Investment Management. Um, the, the investment management business was struggling somewhat uh, at that period of time. The business was going through a major period of change under under Bob Joss, of, of course, who was brought in from America to turn the overall Westpac around. Um, um, Ian McCown, who's now the very successful head of Pinnacle. Um, uh, recruited me at Westpac, and that was a, a really, really uh, positive and interesting experience. Anyway, um, moving on, um, I then made the call um, in, in my late 30s, uh, this is now the late 90s, to go and have a crack and to back myself. And uh, cut a long story short, um, I, uh, I founded Perennial Value, um, again, as a value investor at that time. Our, our core product was a, a large cap value capability. I well remember at the time, um, at, at one conversation I remember was a senior stockbroker who I'd known for many, many years, um, telling him what I was about to do. And he said, Johnny, you're mad. Um, the value investing was is dead, it's gone. You know, this was a late, late 99, uh, early 2000, the tech boom. Of course, that was quickly followed by the tech wreck. Um, so timing, looking back, was, uh, wasn't too bad in terms of setting up a... Uh, a value business. I well remember day one, started off on the 28th of March 2000, uh, managing um, $40 million. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we've grown the business since. And we'll talk a little bit more about that over the next few minutes, because it's been a pretty exciting story, particularly over the last few years. But we're now, um, we're now at about $6.5 billion in funds management and, and growing as well. So, so John, <laughs> what are the major strategies of the business today that you manage? Yeah, um, we've evolved uh, the business David considerably over the last handful of years, and uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, um, we our, our core philosophy has been a, a large cap value business, and also moving down into small caps as well. Um, but because we saw a number of winds of change in the industry, which perhaps we'll touch on uh, um, in a few minutes' time as well, we 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 decided it was was um, a time to to pivot the business, if you like. Um, because we felt if we stayed just as a as a value investment business, um, that that may not work for, for 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 you know for the longevity of the business in the long term. So what we've done is that we we've really now view ourselves as as a specialist investment house, um, and, and within that house we have a range of specialist investment boutiques, some very established, um, 
um, others quite quite new and quite exciting as well. So, you know, if I go across the capabilities, um, large cap value, shares for income, small caps, micro caps, private to public, um, and that capability invests predominantly in unlisted and pre-IPO companies with strong growth prospects. Um, better future, that's a small mid-cap uh, focused um, fund with a very strong and proper um, ESG focus. Fairlight Asset Management, uh, that's a global small mid-cap capability based here in Sydney. Uh, Daintree Capital, uh, a specialist fixed interest manager. Uh, we also have a team of derivative specialists in a, in a company called, um, or a boutique called Perennial Solutions. Um, they work very closely with large institutional investors. And we've also got a, a quite new but emerging active ETF business called, called E-Invest. So, so we have a range of, range of capabilities there. So we've diversified. So whilst we have a core value, um, a value fund uh, in terms of large cap value and small cap value, um, we've also diversified the business across, um, across as other asset classes, uh, Daintree, which I mentioned, fixed interest, and also into other, uh, other geographies um, as, as with Fairlight Asset Management and its global mid, uh, mid to small cap capability. And John, how would you define for our listeners value investing? Yeah, great question, uh, David. Everyone has a different definition of value. Um, but broadly, we, we, we look at, a, 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 I guess I'd, I'd say, um, a handful of key criteria. So we don't, um, we don't hang our hat on one valuation technique or one valuation metric, um, but we look at a range of measures. Um, and then if you like, uh, with, each, with each company, we look at the composite, uh, composite of them. So some of them may be seen as, as old-fashioned, but, but, but many of them have stood the test of time. So you know, price-to-earnings ratios, um, all other things being equal, the lower the PE, the better. Um, in simplistic terms, dividend yields really important to us. Um, really important to us, um, and 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 you know, an Australian company's perspective with the imputation uh, credit regime in Australia, you know, pre-tax uh, yields is something we measure, which are quite quite important to us as well. Um, price to free cash flow. Uh, you know, we spend a lot of time. We've got a, a very big team um, of of, 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 inter of analysts internally. We've got our own proprietary research capability. Uh, we spend a lot of time analysing analyzing companies, as you would imagine. And free cash flow is one of the key things we look at there. So price to free cash flow is important to us. Um, price to NTA, which is uh, price to net tangible assets, that's a little bit old-fashioned these days. Um, but sometimes that can, unearth, uh, that can unearth value as well. There are a range of other factors we look at as well. Um, and, and John, how But that do just you... gives you a sense. So, so, yeah. it, it, so, so in a sense to... Um, now, not all those measures are applicable to, to all companies, um, but you can apply different 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 measures to different companies to come up with a sense of valuation. That's not the only driving force, but it, what it does mean is it it forces the discipline on us not not to overpay for companies. And and how do you determine in that? And I, I think when we're sitting here in a market where growth investing has been very very strong for a period of time and certainly over the last 12 months uh, where the market seems to just want growth, growth and growth. Um, mm. How do you determine when you're looking through a value lens at price earnings multiples and, mm. and these sort of things, whether or not there's been a fundamental change in that business? Yeah, and sure. the reason that it's cheap is because the future prospects of it mm. aren't particularly bright. Yeah. Um, one of the other things we look very closely at, David, is um, is medium-term earnings. Um, 
So, so typically within our models, we'll, we'll look at what we believe a company's earnings trajectory might look at over the next, say, three years and possibly up to five years. Now, of course, the further, you, the further out you look, the more uncertain life becomes in terms of trying to anticipate what the earnings projections are. So, um, so, so, so I guess it's a, um, you know, when I talked about the price earnings ratio before, it's, it's not just a, a, a share price related to the earnings in the next 12 months. We're sort of trying to look at, at share prices now compared to how earnings might look over the next one, two, three, three years. Beyond that, it starts to become a little bit of a lottery in our, in our view. So I don't know if that answers your question, but but that that's that that's how we try and it it, it, it that's how we try and um, cope with companies that might have high growth prospects. But having said that, I guess my training and the training of our people is such as that we we tend to be a little bit cynical, um, and we, we we're seeing I think we're seeing a lot of this at the moment, particularly in uh, in all things tech where. Uh, where people's projections of future earnings growth are in, in many cases are absolutely off the charts and, and really unbelievable and probably aren't going to be achieved. Um, now, that may mean that we miss out on investment opportunities every now and then, but, but if, if, the, if you, you know, as Rob Maple Brown said to me many, many years ago, you, you, you can't catch every bus and you shouldn't expect to catch every bus. Um, so yeah, we 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 tend to be fairly conservative uh, in terms of our earnings forecasts, and we, you know, regardless of of the flavour of the day, um, we don't like paying up for companies, um, and we are we are generally quite wary of really really high growth companies. Um, you know, there are a lot of failures amongst them, and you know, history is littered with uh, with examples of that. Um, yep. And John, if I could maybe change pace here a little bit and talk about your you know, vast and deep experience around the structure of the industry. And I'm really interested to understand and draw upon your history and knowledge with all those you know, wonderful people who have built the funds management industry here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting for listeners, and I, I see a lot of you know, retail investors and wholesale investors and family offices who quite often don't understand some of the structural things that get in the way of funds mm. management. I'm keen to get your thoughts on the difference between a really good investor and a successful investor versus a really good investment management operational business that might market well and do everything else and, and may have structural benefits in terms of how it's plugged into distributions, etc. Is that something you've seen along the way with your vast history in the industry, yeah, gee, there's a whole lot of points um, in gathered there, in, your, in, in yeah. your question, there, David. I'm, I'm just trying to think of the the, the best place to, to, to start here. Um, I, I think one of the things you touched on is a really interesting point, and that is, you know, in the, in the world of funds management, I think a lot of funds management organisations have been criticised for just being asset gatherers, if if, if you like. Um, well, I guess if you, if you think of this through the lens of somebody assessing or looking at a funds management business quite often, you know, I think how and where I'm trying to explain to clients and to individuals how to think about that and what some of the structural challenges they face as the end consumer. Yes, yes, yeah. Okay, maybe, uh, you know, a a good place to start will be to talk about, you know, some of the challenges which we've faced as a fund manager, uh, David, over the last few years. 
And there's no doubt, um, you know, there've been many challenges uh, over a number of years. But I'd, I'd highlight four, four key changes from, from where we sit. First of all, a big superannuation funds have become, you know, they've become massive, um, compulsory super, um, super funds merging, merging and so forth. So they've attained a lot of pr pricing power because of that. Um, paying so the up. Australian supers, the host plus, the yeah, rests. Yeah, that's right. That, that, those, uh, those, those big funds. Um, and, but the other thing they've done is they've reduced outsourcing. So they've, if you like, they've, they've, they've reduced the amount of money that they farm out, if you like, to fund managers such as ourselves, and they've built yeah. their own their own in-house uh, in investment teams. Um, there are more competitors from our point of view in terms of fund managers to choose from. Um, when we started Perennial, there were, there, were, there were less competitors, there were a lot more now, but that's a good thing uh, for investors generally. M massive advances in technology, and I guess this applies to many industries, doesn't it? But massive advances in technology, that's opened up equity markets to everyone. Um, and, and in a sense, everyone has become a fund manager in some ways. Um, and, and the final point I'd highlight is indexation. Um, that's been a major trend over, the, uh, over a number of years as well. Again, very low fees, so it doesn't cost investors much to invest in index funds. Yeah, you know, that's presented a major challenge to the world of active managers, of which, of which perennial is one. Um, so I suppose, you know, we, we, we've been in an environment, David, where there have where been major challenges, um, but, I, but I guess that's what business is all about. Um, and I'd like to think that we foresaw some of these changes. Um, you know, these changes don't happen overnight. They tend to happen over a multi-year period. And, 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 you know, we've pivoted the business in a quite deliberate manner over the last few years, you know, to build the sort of a niche investment capabilities, which, which I, I referred to earlier. So... So in terms of the investing public, you know, whether it be individual investors, whether it be family offices or high net worth investors or whether it be uh, um, uh, super funds or, or whatever, um, when they look at a fund manager uh, such, as, such as Perennial, um, that they want to see um, that, that we, can, we can be doing something that they can't do, essentially. Um, uh, so, so I think, um, I think Fairlight would be a good example, which I referred to as well, where you know, most, most, most investors um, uh, might have an investment in overseas equities. Uh, they might have you know, some of the big US tech stocks that we all uh, know of, um, and they might have a, a combination of fund managers, people like Magellan and, and Platinum and perhaps one or two others, but they may not have the expertise to to invest in global small cap capability, and that's where that's why we've um, we've um, we've got this capability called Fairlight, which can offer investors um, that capability. So, in short, what 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 we've done is we've pivoted the business um, to to provide capabilities, which I suppose um, our, our potential client base can't 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 do themselves, uh, if you like. Um, and that's that's probably been the that's that's been the I think the key challenge for for fund managers in the last few years, not just here but globally. Um, and it's been quite reassuring for you know a number of observers in in the industry to to to, to have said to us, you know, you, you're on the right track here in terms of offering this this range of niche capabilities. And John, if we look at where we are at the moment and start talking a little bit about your view of some of the opportunities in the future. Um, what, what's your current view of where markets are sitting and, and what sort of things do you like and what sort of things are you trying to avoid? Yeah, um, you mean uh, from an investment from an, invest an investment perspective? Yeah, um, it's been extraordinary to see what's um, what's happened up, up, over the last 12 months and the, the, the you know, the, 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 the economies of, of, of 
in general are on, are on fire at the moment. It's just who would have thought? I don't think anyone would have uh, would have anticipated this. Um, I, I I have a view that markets over the next um, twelve months, and this is just a general observation, will will probably range trade as sort of a plus of five, plus or minus five to ten percent uh, range. Um, you know, one, one of the, uh, the, the the fiscal stimulus um, and, and monetary stimulus is, is, that's been applied uh, to global economies you know, sort of post-COVID has just been unbelievable. It's been extraordinary. Um, and that that's, that's really, really does seem to be driving quite strong economic growth, you know, right across, right across the world, including, including Australia. Um, it, it's hard to see that that that's going to change for a little while yet. So I think in some ways that that underpins um, that underpins equity markets for for, for quite some time. Um, so I, 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 I there are always bubbles in markets. Um, are there any bubbles out there at the moment? The, the only bubble that I can see is in the if you like the sort of broadly one would broadly describe it as being tech tech based companies um, and and if you were to put those those companies into two categories um, yeah profitable um, to becoming profitable quite soon to unprofitable and, and not being profitable for for many years to come that latter category looks 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 like a bubble to me um, whilst it's not my style of investing I, I can see a case for for, for companies that are, tech companies are either profitable or moving into profits, um, how one might want to buy them um, over, the, over the medium term if those rates of earnings growth continue. But for those companies where there's where there's no profits for, for, for quite a while yet, um, I think people. Well, the problem there, of course, if, if there's no E, you can't put a you can't put a value on it. Uh, you know what the share price is, but you don't know what the earnings are, so you can't put a sort of a uh, you can't complete the PE equation, as it were. Um, so that that's pretty dangerous territory to me. But but more generally, I do see, I, I do see good pockets of value in the market. I mean, if if, if part of your question is, you know, where, where do I, you know do I see you know good value in any area at the market? Uh, the answer is I do. I I, I, I and ironically, it's um, I think it's in sort of large caps. I, I see a lot of value in in large caps in the Australian market at the moment. Probably highlight two two areas, David. Um, in in large cap resource companies, um, the likes of BHP, Rio, and Fortescue, on on the back of unbelievable and unbelievable um, iron ore price at the moment. You know, it, it, as we speak now, it's um, it's touching US one hundred ninety dollars. Um, uh, uh, un unbelievable. I mean, BHP today uh, released its quarterly uh, quarterly earnings update. And they've said that their, um, their their cost of production is somewhere between US thirteen and US fourteen dollars, and here we are. They're earning at the moment uh, at spot prices of uh, US one hundred and ninety dollars. The cash flow generation of these big iron ore companies is the, the cash flow generation. I've never seen anything like it from from, from any company ever since I've, I've been in this industry. Um, so whilst the share prices of those companies have have, have gone up. Um, it must be said that you know share prices of most companies have gone up in the last little while, haven't they? So um, I don't think that's 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 something to to worry about too much. I think the dividend flows. Um, you know, I sat down with my analyst a couple of days ago and just went through the through the, some scenario analysis in terms of you know just the free cash flow and the dividends. 
and it's just they're, they're printing money, they're, they're, they're printing cash. So I think the potential for um, very strong dividends from these companies over the next six to 12 months is, uh, is, is fantastic. Um, and you're going to get very good levels of franking credits coming with this, uh, with this as well. Um, I'd probably, I'd probably of, the, of, the, of those three, I'd probably have a preference for BHP. I quite like the diversification in BHP, iron ore, oil and gas, and also copper. Um, you, you could argue over the medium term that the outlook for copper looks very good, you know, particularly on the back of the growth in electric vehicles and uh, and so forth. So I think those large resource companies look 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 good, and I think it's the dividend yield, as I say, which I think will um, will serve investors very well. Um, if the iron ore price was to be hit, um, would 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 the share prices be hit as much? Well, I'm not sure they would because I think the dividend yields will start to underpin share prices. Um, the other area is the is Australian banks, the, the, the banks. I, I think they're quite good value. Um, they've been out of favour now and they've been on the nose, haven't they, for, for quite some time. Um, you know, that, so, so that peak pressure they had in terms of regulatory pressures and um, uh, pressures from the press and the public and the Royal Commission and, and everything that we know that the banks went through, that, that's now well and truly passed. The banks uh, again, they're in they're in they're in very good shape at the moment. Their their tier one capital ratios are the best they've ever been. Their liquidity ratios are, are very strong. I, I think it's um, quite possible that, that due to the underlying strength of the Australian economy at the moment, um, which I don't think is going to stop at any 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 time soon, um, it, it's it's possible that they're that they've over-provisioned for, for bad and doubtful debts. Um, so that, if you like, there's probably uh, a little bit of hollow logging there, um, um, which, which has the potential to, to feed through in terms of uh, um, better earnings as well. And of course, what feeds through from all that is, is, is a better dividend outlook as well. And as, you know, as we all know, um, you know, banks dropped their dividends uh, over the course of the last 12 months. They, uh, like, like all of us, they didn't quite know what the future held, but you know, due to the factors that we've just, just discussed then, um, you, know, you will see their dividends um, come back to normal levels, more, more no normal levels over the next six to 12 months. And again, franking as well. So I've spent a fair bit of time talking about yield over the last few minutes in terms of big resource stocks and, and banks. But I, 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 you know, in many ways, it, it picks up to your, your early, uh, earlier question uh, of me in terms of value investing. One of the things um, I've always liked is an each way bet in terms of um, in terms of value investing. If you've got to focus not just on capital growth but also on the on the ability of companies to deliver a, a regular franked um, uh, dividend income stream, then you 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 don't need to rely as much on getting a capital growth. So so to me, total return outcomes. Um, um, you know, they're all about getting some good capital growth. It doesn't have to be fantastic, but solid capital growth over time. But also, if you're getting paid uh, by way of a dividend along the way, um, you're being uh, you're being fed along the way. Um, and and I, so I think that each way bet is uh, is a, is a feature of the, of the way we invest at Perennial, as opposed, you know, just to relying on capital growth. And and how do you think about the competitive landscape from both? Uh, potentially international banks coming back into the Australian market and or technology or online other disruptive technologies, you know, such as Afterpay in the credit card market, et cetera, mm -hmm. to, to some of those 
domestic banks. Yeah, sure. Um, that's almost a, a whole discussion in itself. But but just to just to summarise that, um, you know, there have been many times in the past when 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 overseas banks have tried to make their presence felt um, in the Australian market, um, and and it's almost. You know, the, 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 if you like, the, Australia's population, if you like, is such that it, it, it's tended to have favoured oligopolistic type, um, type, type um, structures. And, and I think that's been the case in, in, in the banking sector. Um, you know, we saw way back um, with deregulation in the 80s and the 90s, a whole swathe of uh, offshore banks, you know, amongst the biggest in the world. Um, um, came in and, and they they just couldn't um, they they couldn't make their, their presence felt. Um, I think Australians, as much as um, bank bashing is, is has sort of been quite popular, um, becomes um, in and out of fashion over time. But notwithstanding that, I, th I think Australians generally like to have a, a, a like to have a mainstream banking relationship with one of the big banks. Um, so I think that's a I think that applies to many businesses as well. So I think in many ways that's a, that's a um, that that that's a good thing in terms of um, the Aussie banks remaining relevant to the Australian, the Australian consumer. In terms of technology threats and and, and so forth, well, I, I don't think it's it's it's, it's anything new, uh, you, um, you know, in terms of tech technological threats. I think that that's been the case for for, for many years. Um, it's it's certainly not to be underestimated. Um, I'm not believing for one minute that there aren't technological threats to the banks from, from other organisations. You know, you mentioned Afterpay and there, there are clearly lots of, other, lots of other players out there as well. But on the flip side, I, 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 you know, these banks, are, they're big um, and they've got massive resourcing. Uh, they're financially in a very strong position, as I alluded to earlier. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think we should underestimate the ability of the, of the Australian banks to, to compete, if you like, on, on the technology side. So, um, yeah, uh, it's a threat, um, but, 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 uh, but I don't think it's a threat that would, uh, that would if, if you like, cause us to think that the Australian banks uh, won't have a significant presence um, in the Australian economy you know, going forward. John, so as a stock selector, what are some of the key criteria that have worked for you over the years? Yeah, David, um, there, there are the three key things. The first one's capital preservation, um, and and that's all about the strength of balance sheets. Um, as a general rule of thumb, we don't like companies with a lot of debt. If something goes wrong, and often things goes wrong, think, often things go wrong when you least anticipate it. Uh, the company's carrying a lot of debt. Um, it can really be a be a big issue. So so low debt levels. Um, capital preservation. Uh, secondly, margin for safety. We talked a little bit earlier about um, how we don't like paying up for companies and that's really what, what we're talking about in terms of margin for safety. So uh, the more expensive a, a company is, something goes wrong, the further the uh, the share price downside. So margin for safety and not paying up is, is really critical. Um, the, the, and, and the final test is what is a broader test and what I, what I call the five-year test. And that is, you're looking at a company now, you've done all your homework on the company, um, you've made your various assessments, but sort of sit back and say to yourself, you know, to, to, what, degree, to, to what degree are you confident that this company will still be in good shape in five years from now and, and hopefully in 10 years from now? And I think at the moment that five-year test is really, really interesting. Um, you know, in the context of resource stocks and bank stocks, uh, um, high degree of confidence that, that, that 
that those, those companies and those sectors will be around 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, they also pass those capital preservation and margin for safety tests, as I talked about with the likes of BHP and, 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 and the banks. Um, that bubble I talked about earlier with, uh, with tech stocks, I think this is where it gets interesting. Um, do they pass the capital preservation test? Do they pass the margin for safety test uh, in terms of valuation? And how confident are you as an investor that those companies, given the rate of technology, um, can change very quickly, that they will be around in five years plus from here? So I think in a nutshell, they're, they're the key criteria which have worked pretty well for me um, over, the, uh, over the years. So John, in conclusion, you have had a fantastic career and, and been successful for a long amount of time. In your view, what does it take to have a successful investment management firm? Yeah, no, thanks, David. I mean, you know, right from the day we founded Perennial, you know, our aim was to build an enduring business that will stand stand the test of time. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's, um, we'd like to think that we've achieved that, but, you know, this is the marathon that never ends. Uh, we've just got to, that's all past, and we've got to keep on, Keep on delivering, but there are some there are some key building blocks, and I guess we've learnt we've learnt along the way. The first one is you know having skin in the game. Um, so my team and I own the business one hundred percent now. Uh, up until on day one when we founded um, uh, Perennial Value, uh, we had a minority shareholder shareholder a listed company called IWF Financial Services Organisation. They had a, a minority share. We we bought their uh, their forty percent out um, in two thousand and nineteen. So as of as of two thousand and nineteen, we now wholly own the business. Um, over and above that, we've got a considerable amount of our own savings um, in, invested across our funds. So if you talk to um, all of our senior people and indeed a, a, a quite a few of our junior people, um, you'll find a lot of money our, our own savings invested in our funds. And I, I couldn't think of a more powerful line of, of interest with our investors um, in terms of that ownership and investing in our funds. Yeah, we're essentially sitting on the same side of the table uh, as all of our clients. It keeps us absolutely focused and we'll only survive if we deliver good returns for our investors. Our core philosophy is really all about clients first, and we've got to deliver excellence in funds management. And, and, and so that, that whole clients first philosophy, um, you know, that, 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 that just defines everything we do. Um, and it really, is a, it really is a key building block. And in some ways, it sets the roadmap for how we behave internally, whether we're fund managers, um, whether we're in, in compliance, sales and marketing operations, uh, what, whatever. The key ingredient to all this, which probably gets to the hub of this, is, is, to, have, is to have top quality people. Now, the, you have top shelf fund managers, so the people managing the money, making the investments, decisions day to day. And we, you know, we'd like to think um, that we've built very deep bench strength in this regard. And I mentioned earlier, you know, we've built up a range, we've had a range of capabilities in place for many, many years, um, but also we've pivoted the business, uh, as I discussed earlier, uh, in the last uh, last handful of years, um, and 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 you know the the key um, aspect there in terms of building a new capability is to make sure you've got top shelf people that can deliver um, investment outcomes that our investors are looking for, and you know they, they they've got skin in the game as I as I mentioned. So um, uh, in terms of being owners of their boutiques and investing their own funds as well, and and you know. They've got to be supported, and they are supported by really good people right across all facets of the business. So when we look at sales and marketing, operations, finance, we've got to have top quality people there. 
Um, I'd also say just on that, um, you know, you know, what are the key purple characteristics that, that we're looking for, David? Um, this is a really interesting one, and you learn over time because uh, you never get it completely right, but uh, we certainly aim to. And, and you know, the, the following characteristics I, I, I think are really important. Um, you know, this is a tough game. This, um, you know, you you can cop a lot of punches. You can have a couple of good days, and then a really really bad day and you think god uh, you know what's 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 happening here so you know humility um humility i think is a really important personal characteristic you know a liberal dose of common sense um i think a steadiness of personality that can withstand the pressures of managing money particularly on those really bad days but also on the good days as well you know not to get too carried away and i think particularly with the money managers the key people They've got to have the courage. Of, you've got to have the courage of your convictions, um, particularly when things are going against you. Um, and I think another characteristic is passion. You know, I want to see some fire in the belly. Um, you know, these people that are, that are managing the money, um, all you know, sort of circa forties plus or minus of plus or minus a few years. Um, you know, ambitious in some ways, but in a nice sort of a way. They want to do the right thing by their investors, but but and they've got a deep abiding belief in what they're doing. So whether it's someone managing micro caps or the guys managing fixed interest in Daintree or uh, whatever across the various capabilities, um, better future. We've got some people there in terms of I mentioned our ESG capability before. Um, you know, they're passionate about ESG and they've delivered some fantastic results. Uh, over the last uh, over the last couple of years, and and you know that's helping us embed um, those those proper um, uh, ESG capabilities into our other investment capabilities as well. So there's there's a great spin-off there. So that's the people bit. I've gone on a bit about that, but I think that's really really critical. And the final point I'd highlight in terms of you know building an enduring. Um, and, and hopefully outstanding business going forward is you've got to have discipline investment processes. So when you look at each and every one of our boutiques, they've got a clearly understood and definitive approach to how they invest their clients' monies. We've got some value, uh, values how we started, but uh, you know we've got other capabilities as well, um, as, as, as mentioned earlier. And, and so building a strong internal research capability and that discipline investment process. Um, so to summarise, um, uh, number one, an unabiding uh, focus on clients first, that sets the roadmap. Uh, two top shelf people across the board that are part owners of their business and have got investment in their funds. So people with you know, true skin in the game. And, and, and number three, discipline investment processes, which will stand the test of time. Terrific. Wonderful to have you on Inside the Rope. Thanks for your time, John. No, it's a pleasure, David. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.